Thanks for tuning in to How's Things, a podcast from the David A. Howe Public Library. I'm Nick Gunning. Happy New Year! My guest today is Don Daneman. Now, Don is best known as the original lead singer and guitarist of the band The Circle. Starting in 1966, The Circle would release three albums, Red Rubber Ball, Neon, and the soundtrack for the film The Minx. Their top 40 hit, Red Rubber Ball, is one of my all-time favorites. It was written by Paul Simon and Bruce Woodley of The Seekers. And this one, for me, is just every time it comes on the radio, it puts me in a good mood. I feel like I've had it on every version of a mixtape, whether that's dating back to cassettes or CDs or now just, you know, in my playlist. This is a song that I always keep coming back to. Uh, same with the follow-up single, which was Turn Down Day. Both of these are just ones that I feel like have never really gone out of the public consciousness, and so it's just, it's exciting to hear and talk about those songs even now. Outside of their work in the recording studio, The Circle would go on to tour with The Beatles in 1966, and would remain on the bill with The Beatles through their final live concert at Candlestick Park. In recent years, the band has had a bit of a resurgence when it was reformed. Don Daneman and Mike Loskamp from the early days are back, with Pat McLaughlin, Mike Shove, Don White, and Scott Langley rounding out the group. So listen to this conversation I had with Don back in December of 2020. Well, Don, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Great to be here. Now, I've got to tell you, the, the Circle's Red Rubber Ball album is one that I've just had my entire life. I don't know, it just materialized somewhere, you know, I picked it up at a secondhand shop or, you know, a record shop or something, but I... It's one that I've been listening to just for as long as I can remember. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you today. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. I wonder if you could take me back to the early days. I'm a little curious about the very first time you ever heard the song Red Rubber Ball, because I've heard uh, that it wasn't love at first sound for you. Is that true? Uh, no, it was, not, it was not love. It was um, we were at the point where we had just gotten our Columbia record contract. Okay. And we were looking for songs to record, and um, you know we we were playing around with lots of stuff. Our our at that time new producer John Simon, mm -hmm. you know, young producer at Columbia, and we would go into his office, and he would have stacks and stacks and stacks of forty five records, demo records to listen to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were, we'd listen, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And bandmate Tommy Dawes, at that time, we were hanging around in, in the village, in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And he be, he met and became uh, friendly with a fellow named Barry Kornfeld. Okay. Who had a publishing company with Paul Simon. Oh, okay. And Tommy heard Red Rubber Ball sung by Paul, just a guitar, it was like a guitar voice demo, mm -hmm. the term, and he listened to it and thought, you know, maybe there's a, that might be interesting to try. Yeah. And, you know, so, so he presented it to us, and everybody thought, yeah, let's, let's try it. My own feeling about it was, okay, cute, <laughs> sure, let's try it. I didn't get that it was going to be any great shakes, but yeah, sure, let's try it. And it came together, I mean, I, of course it's a long time ago, but I do remember rehearsing mm -hmm. in some 
place that was not Columbia Studios okay. in, in New York. I have a vague picture of the room, but I don't know what building it was in or whose house or whatever. And we were playing around trying to come up with the arrangement. And mm-hmm. everybody was, you know, chipping in. How, how do we do this? How do we do that? And one thing that I remember very specifically about that rehearsal is we're trying to come up with what instru- what can the instruments play besides yeah. just, just the chords. And there are basically, there's two main lead instruments on Red Rubber Ball. One is the organ, and that yeah. was John that was John Simon that came up with that. That was John Simon. And we were trying to figure out, well, maybe what what can the guitar do besides regular chords, rhythm guitar? And I was playing playing it and holding the guitar and thinking I'm not getting anything. Nothing's coming mm. out. And I handed the guitar to Tommy Dawes, who um, was mainly playing bass, but also he was a, a good guitar player, mm-hmm. and he would also play guitar. And he just spontaneously played what ended up to be the lead guitar licks, which I played. You know, once he played it, then he handed it back to me. I said, oh, good, I can play that, yeah. And that goes... I should have known, and then back into in the song. Yeah, and so those two lead instruments were a key in that song being a hit because when when the record first comes on, you immediately know what song it is. Yeah. In you know, a second or two when, when, oh, yeah. when it comes on. It's it's very identifiable. Well and I- no, go on. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean the, the track is just so interesting because, like, just like you're saying, there's so many different layers. There's so many different things happening in there, and you know, it, it's not like this was the only version of this song. I mean, of course, there's a Neil Diamond version and others, and whenever I hear those, I'm always disappointed because they're so much simpler than what you guys were able to accomplish. And that thing, just I mean, with just when the organ comes in, like you know, you're going to have a good time, and then it just keeps going in unexpected ways, both with the instruments and the harmonies. So, I mean, it's just uh, it just puts you in a good mood as soon as you hear it. Yeah, and I don't, I did not appreciate this at the time. You know, <laughs> I, I only came to appreciate Red Rubber Ball late in life. Okay, actually, wow. You know, at the time, it was like, wow, we got a hit record. How cool is that? But as far as the song goes, yeah, it's cute. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's what I thought of it. Somewhere in the mid-80s, I think it was, Columbia Records gave a license to a small record company called Sundays okay. that deals in re-releasing oldies. Okay. And so they, had, they got the license to uh, release our material. And they asked us to comment. You know, like they put together, I think at the time it was actually a cassette. It was, yeah, it was actually a little bit before CDs. Okay. Um, and they sent me a cassette and they said, you know, we, we, we'd like your comments. And at the time, I was very busy in doing commercials. I, I When the group broke up, I, I formed a music production company and, and we did mainly advertising work for ad agencies mm-hmm. both in New York and, and around the country and I really wasn't that interested you know it was like been there done that but 
they asked for the comments, and I hadn't listened to it in, in, in a while, so I, I, I happened to be on a plane mm-hmm. by myself, and I thought, okay, let, let, let me listen to this, and I'll, I'll, I'll comment. So they they released our stuff. It was roughly chronological okay. in, in, when as we recorded it. So Red Rubber Ball was the first thing that came on. So I'm on the plane with a Sony Walkman, <laughs> haha, if you remember. Oh, yeah. And... I put on headphones and I'm my head is down in my lap and I'm listening and on comes Red Rubber Ball and I actually had an epiphany, like oh my god, <laughs> I now understand why this song was a hit, and it's just as we were just discussing the guitar and the organ when they come on, yeah, it's a very unique sound unto itself. It's you unmistakable, know exactly what yeah. It is. It, it it really works. It's it, it musically it's very pleasing. Just works. And then I come in, I start you know, I should have known you'd bid me farewell. Tommy, bandmate Tommy Dawes joins me starting with the harmony. And our harmony in days before you could auto tune or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. The harm the harmonies were just right on. Yeah. And it was a wonderful blend. And I realized that, you know, we really sound like the circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very unique sound. It, yes. Nobody else sounded like yeah, that. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, yeah, we, 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 we sounded that way. So it really deserves to be a hit. Yeah. Now, fast forward to our current time period now. The band, so I was uh, retired from my commercial career. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from uh, our keyboard player who replaced the original keyboard player, Earl Pickens. Okay. Uh, he re- in, uh, it was late 60s that Mike Loskamp joined the band. And he was playing in a band. It was called the Gas Pump Jockeys in okay. Columbus, Ohio. And he had been playing in bands ever since the group broke up. He never he never stopped. He had a regular job, but never stopped playing in bands. One of his bandmates, a fellow named Pat McLaughlin, who also played in bands his, his whole life, but had a real job. He was a sales manager at AT&T, actually, and did quite well. He's retired, continuing playing in bands. And he thought, hey, why can't we be the circle? You know, here we got Mike. Right. And... A booking agent of uh, his, a friend of his, said, "You know, why don't you get one more guy? And yeah, you could be the circle. I mean, many oldies bands they don't have the whole band. Right? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's just one or two or none, mm-hmm. actually. So anyway, they reached out to me. So that started the band revival. And I, I mean, can that... talk about the band revival, but that's not the subject we were on. I'm talking about Red Rubber Ball specifically. So I want to get back to that. But it involved the band revival. Sure. Hence my bringing that up. So. So here I am realizing that Red Rubber Ball, yeah, it was it really had a unique sound. I guess it really did deserve to be a hit. But now in the band revival when we play and I get comments on Red Rubber Ball, mainly from meet and greet after the concerts. You know, we always have meet and greet where you sit out at a table and we sign autographs and sell records and pictures and all that sort of stuff. And People come up with me with all sorts of comments sure. about Red Rubber Ball. And the comments 
go from a big range, actually, but they kind of go from, you know, Red Rubber Ball was my first 45 record. (laughs) We we played it to death. We just wore it out. We played it to death. Another one that I found pretty interesting was uh, a guy comes up to me and he shakes my hand. He goes, thank you. Uh, I say, you're welcome. Why are you thanking me? He says, I want you to know that Red Rubber Ball got me through my divorce. Oh, wow. It was, it's such an uplifting song. I would wake up in the morning, it came on on the air, and it got me through my divorce. So I was, it was such a bad time, and this uplifted yeah. me. The morning sun is shining like a right. red rubber ball. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and a third one, and this one, this was one specific comment, but it, it, it has happened over and over again. Um, a guy came up to me also after a concert. He says, I want you to know I'm a Vietnam vet. And he had his hat on. Oh, wow. Know, Vietnam vet. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, we had a little battery-operated tape recorder that had red rubber ball on it. And I can't tell you how many battles that song got us through. And we actually teared up and hugged. Oh, yeah. It was, it was very meaningful. And so what I... It, additionally, realizing the musical level of it, you know, why it deserved to be a hit. Another thing that I only realized in this recent revival is that Red Rubber Ball was more than a cute song that had good musicality and became a hit. It actually was one of the premier uplifting anthems mm-hmm. of, of the 1960s. Yeah. And it meant so much to thousands of people that I'm only finding out in this these later years and I'm honored to have been a part of you know having an influence on thousands of people some of whom now I get to meet and hear about them during our our revival it's a great experience I, I imagine it would be I mean just the fact that that something you did 50 plus years ago had has had this effect this whole time and it's still you know is still resounding in people's hearts and minds all these years later I mean that must be amazing yeah it's truly amazing it's it's just a, a wonderful experience well, I get what you're saying, too, because the, the song really is about coming out of a bad situation and, and starting a new chapter, which is a really uplifting thing that I think, regardless of time and place, that's something that most people can relate to. And that topic, I think, is kind of unique for songs that were contemporary with it. Yeah, yeah. So, once again, honored to have been a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back even earlier. Where did you grow up? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Lived in Brooklyn until I was 12 years old when we moved to East Chester, New York, which is a suburb of the city. Mm -hmm. My mom tells me (laughs) that when I was about 10 months old and she's diapering me and she was humming Little Brown Jug. Okay. Just a simple little Little Brown Jug, Little Brown Jug, I love you. Uh And I hummed it back to her. At 10 months old. So okay, starting early. Musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess at the time, I was probably, um, this is, I'm thinking this is 1955. Uh-huh. I got a transistor radio for my birthday day, and I'm just playing with the stations. We're sitting on our back porch in Brooklyn, and I came across Alan Freed's original rock and roll show from that era and as you i i don't know if you know it or not alan free is the guy that coined the term rock and roll oh absolutely yeah and 
Yeah, I mean, and one of the main DJs of the time that just, you know, big name. Anyway, so I'm listening to, I came, and I didn't know him at the time. I just playing with the, the radio. So there I come across on um, WINS in New York, Alan Freed's Rock and Roll Show. And the first song that came on was a song called Story Untold by the Nutmegs. Now, people that are listening to this, I'm sure, would not have a clue <laughs> what, what, what that is. But it was a really down and dirty, not really dirty, but I'm just using that expression, <laughs> yeah. doo-wop song. It's real doo-wop. Uh-huh. And I hadn't heard that before, and it just captivated me. And I remember missing my favorite TV shows because I kept listening <laughs> to this. And it just got me started to, to the point where, you know, I I, I got to do this. <laughs> you know, like I just need to know how to do this. So were, were there you know, musicians in the family? Actually, yeah, there, there were. My Well, my mom played piano. Okay. Uh, not, not professionally, but her brother, my Uncle Sam, played woodwinds in oh. the big band orchestra. Oh, wow. Actually, yeah. He was a professional woodwind player. I think his main instrument was clarinet, but he played them all, all the woodwinds. Interesting. Yeah. He played in the Army band during World War II and went on to play in big bands. Wow. Yeah. And he got to a point where the family had a business and he had to make a choice. Am mm. I going to stay playing with big bands yeah. or do I go into the family business? And he chose the family business. Okay. I mean, he couldn't turn, couldn't turn it down. Yeah. But yeah. He was a professional woodwind player. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I, I had taken some piano lessons. We then moved to East Chester and I moved on to guitar lessons. Uh-huh. Very influenced by Elvis. You know, I think oh, it was, sure. It, it was really cool to hold a guitar. <laughs> It was, it was almost more for image, you know? Yeah, yeah. So my first, let's call it gig, in high school, uh-huh. so here I am, I had a guitar and an amp. I was only playing for myself. Sure. But our next-door neighbor, who was a friend of mine, was in a band, and their guitar player, his amp broke. Oh. And so, and they asked me, he just asked me, hey, Don, can we borrow your amp? Because uh-huh. Nicky's, uh, you know, his amp broke. And my mom suggested to me, hey, Don, why don't you tell him you'll loan him the amp if you can come and during their breaks you can play? Oh, very clever of her. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, really? Yeah. So it's a great memory that I have. Yeah. You know, of, and I have it, I have it just sort of in my head, a snippet of time. Mm-hmm. So the band played and now they take their breaks and now nobody knew that this was going to happen. And they were not really a rock band. They, you know, they, they played more standard stuff. Okay. I think if I'm recollecting. Anyway, so I get up and I now start playing Buddy Holly kind of stuff. Perfect. You know, yeah. Like that. And I still remember when I started playing, I have a, vision of the people now they're sitting around at their table uh-huh. at this dance and they look at me like wait a minute what is this like they didn't quite understand what was happening and then all of a sudden they all get up and start dancing oh wow and yeah it was it was just great it was a it, it was a really nice moment well thankfully your mom was as shrewd as she was yes yes and <laughs> god bless her she's still alive today she's she's 98 and she's hanging in there <laughs> 
So I assume you continue to play through high school and then it's college where you really sort of like click with, with a band and other guys, right? That's kind of where it, where it picks up again? Yes. So in college, let's see. So here I'll give you a try, a try and uh, give it, you know, pretty quick, but get the, the salient point. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so, so off I go to Lafayette College. Now this would be the fall of 1961. Okay. Fall of 1961. At a freshman mixer, there was a band. It's interesting. We have a theme of playing during the breaks. Yeah. So, okay, at a freshman mixer, there was a band, a hired band. Mm-hmm. And during the breaks, a couple of fellow freshmen got up and, st- and started playing. And they were playing rock music, uh-huh. the kind of stuff that I played. Okay. So I'm standing there with a friend of mine, a new friend, you know, that a fellow freshman, and uh-huh. we're we're looking at these guys playing, and he knows that I have a guitar and amp and that I play, and he says, "Don, you got to go play with these guys. This mm-hmm. would be really cool." So we ran up to my dorm room, we got my guitar and amp, and we ran down. I ran, ran over to him, and you know, hey, can I play with you guys? Yeah, sure. Let's see what we can do. And it was also it was one of these magic moments where we realized, wow we really jived mm-hmm. this was uh, you know and it was typical songs of the day you know some slow doo-wop songs Everly Brothers Buddy Holly you know we, we harmonized immediately we were able to harmonize oh nice and so they wanted to start a band uh-huh. the guys were by the way just uh, so it was Tommy Dawes uh-huh. so that's our you know bandmate Tommy Dawes yeah uh, original keyboard player Earl Pickens, mm-hmm. who became a doctor and is recently retired from a very successful uh, career in medicine, surgeon. Oh, interesting. And Jim Maiella, who was our original drummer before the Circle. Okay. And we and, and so anyway, so so we're playing, and they said, "Oh, we got to start a band. Are you willing to be in the band?" Now I didn't want to be in the band. Really. Because because no, I mean I wanted to, but I didn't want to. And the reason I didn't want to is because I had my high school girlfriend who was still back in Eastchester, uh. and I didn't want to play in bands on, on a party weekend where right. you know I, I wanted to have my girlfriend, you yeah. know. So, and I said, you know, I don't know, but I did practice with them. I mm-hmm. said, well, let's practice and we'll see what happens. Anyway. Christmas vacation came, and my girlfriend broke up with me. Had a new <laughs> I, I was really heartbroken. Sure, but at the time, yeah. I did. When I got back after Christmas, uh, I told the guys, I said, well, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm broken up, I'm free. So if you want to <laughs> have the band and, and, and get jobs, you know, yeah, I'm in. So our first job, now this, this is actually sort of funny for me I'm not sure if your people listening to this would care one way or the other but I always thought that our first job was worked out and sort of gotten together by keyboard Earl Earl Pickens uh-huh. and and I actually talked about it on on the air on a, on an R and Air interview how okay. Earl got us our first job and and funnily enough it wasn't even at Lafayette it was at Lehigh okay. down the road uh-huh. you know but I get an email after this, this went on the air from the original drummer, not Circle drummer, but the original yeah, yeah. you know drummer at Lafayette from Jim Maiella, 
who happens to live in the area of where that was. It was Long Island. Oh, okay. And he says, hey, Don, it's not a big deal, but I got to straighten you out. I'm the one that got that first job. Oh. So we had a laugh about it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I emailed the back, you know, we, we had a laugh about it. And, um, and I, I asked Earl, actually, too. I said, hey, you remember that? He said, yeah, that was, I think it probably was Jim that got it. Uh-huh. But anyway, we got that, and that was the beginning of a very successful college band career and what what name were you using at this point we didn't have a name and somewhere shortly after we were practicing and all one of the guys just came up to me and said hey our name is the rondells sounds sturdy yeah and (laughs) i thought okay i mean i i didn't love it but i didn't have anything better yeah yeah sure so we so we were the rondells and we played all through college. Now, let's see. After sophomore year, Jim Maiella had his girlfriend decide that he was not playing in a band anymore because he was going to, you know, he, he didn't have time to play in the band. He was going to go into business, whatever. Uh, okay. So we replaced him with... I guess it would have been end of sophomore year, starting junior year, somewhere in that time frame. Marty Freed, who is in fact the Circle drummer, okay. And Mar- yeah, Marty Freed was a year behind us, and we heard he was a good drummer and and he could sing, and that was important because we we did a lot of harmony. So uh, Marty became the drummer, and we became the band to get for your fraternity party. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So. Here we are, spring of 64. Okay. Lafayette has what they call Interfraternity Weekend, okay. IF Weekend, twice a year. It's a big dance for the whole school. They hire a orchestra, like a legit big band orchestra and a rock band. So the orchestra was the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra uh, led by Warren Covington. And we were the rock band. Okay. And it was really cool to be the rock band. Okay, yeah. now this is when this is when the Beatles were, you know, nineteen sixty four, the Beatles are flying high. Oh yeah. We and we knew all that early Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we you know, we were very admiring of them and we we learned it. So we put on a Beatles show. Uh-huh. And we let everybody know. It wasn't formal advertising, but we just let put the word out, we're doing a Beatles show. Okay. We bought long hair beetle wigs. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, you have so, to. <laughs> yeah, and we did all the, all that those early Beatles yeah. songs. We did we we did them, and everybody went wild. Yeah. over this, it was also another great moment in our career, actually. Yeah. Okay, so now Warren Covington, who was leading this Tommy Dorsey orchestra, he was really impressed, and he came up to us and he said, "You know, I wonder if you guys could be a part." of my orchestra and step out and do this rock stuff. Oh. And we thought, well, I guess, sure, we could try it. Yeah. So anyway. It's creative. Um, it's, and, a, it's a creative and, idea. Well, yeah. Now, it, we tried it, and he had a, a gig coming up at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City, and it was our, during our spring break. So we, we tried it with him, and it was not our style of music, so it didn't really work mm. out. Okay. But, Anyway, we shook hands and it was, you know, it was all fine. But there we are in Atlantic City and it's spring in Atlantic City. And 
Now, Earl was going to be off doing an intern, which would have helped him for med school. Okay. So he wasn't available. But Tom, Marty, and I thought, let's see if we could play as a trio and get a summer job. Okay. And we did. We ended up at a place called The Alibi on South Carolina Avenue, right off the boardwalk in Atlantic City. I have no idea if it's still there. I suspect <laughs> it's probably not. Because this is before all the hotels, you yeah. know, gambling and everything. Anyway, we played. We did very well. And we did it again, this time with Earl, actually, in the, the next summer. So this is now summer of 65. Mm -hmm. All right. End of summer of 65, we're all ready to break up and go our separate ways. In walks a gentleman named Nat Weiss. He walks into the alibi and he hears us and he introduces himself after hearing us and he says, Hi, my name is Nat Weiss. I am a divorce lawyer, but <laughs> I am also a good friend of Beatle manager Brian Epstein. Oh, geez. And we are forming a management company here in the States. Uh -huh. And I think you guys are really good. So, you know, get in touch with me. Maybe something can happen. We had been approached by others before. Okay. And we, we didn't really believe it. Anyway, off we went. Earl is in medical school. Tom had, I think, six months to go at Lafayette. Marty had another year to finish up. Okay. And I am now working for my dad in the sheet metal factory. In the <laughs> sheet metal factory. All right. In, in East Chester. And I called, I thought, you know, and, oh, and Tom, Marty, and I were, uh, continued playing just on weekends, yeah. occasional weekends back at Lafayette as a trio. Okay. Because Lafayette was not a, a, a bad drive. You know, it was about a two-hour drive, could do it easily. Yeah. So they're there, and I'm, you know, two hours away. So we were still functioning. Anyway, I called up Nat. He gave me his card, and when I called him, he remembered you know, oh, Don, yeah, how are you? Wow. You know? So, okay. Anyway, he says, why don't you come down? He gave me a date, which was, you know, like a few days, you know, coming up. Uh, he gave me a date and, and a time and an address. Uh, he says, yeah, come down to this place. Uh, it's a, so Some friends are having a party. Come down and I'll introduce you to Brian. Wow. Really? Okay. So I take a buddy of mine, we go down, it's a walk up, one of those small buildings on a side street on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, walk up, and he, you know, he's, we're standing around, he's not there, finally he walks in, and uh, I walk up to him, okay, Nat, how, you know, how you doing? Oh, Don, yeah, good to see you, come on, follow me down. We walk back down a flight of stairs to the street, and there's a limo parked on the street. Okay. Now, I want you to picture, you have to picture a very grand gesture, uh -huh. beckoning, you know, like with his hand, he beckoned, he opens the door and he beckons me into the car. Okay. So I go in the car, he sits me down, and damn, I am sitting across from Brian Epstein. Oh my gosh. And well, that's what I felt. <laughs> I mean, what's crazy about this? It's like it's just it's just a series of these like small little things that could have gone you know one way or another that keep adding up to to putting you like in a limo with Brian Epstein. It's just it's an amazing it, set it, of circumstances. It, it, it is an amazing set of circumstances how things fall into place. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, when, when I think back, and I think, oh God, what if that didn't happen? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a feeling of like, yeah, but it did. I yeah. can't change it. it really yeah. Happened. You know? I mean, what if you hadn't got dumped by your high school girlfriend, right? 
You'd be the sheet metal king of Eastchester right now. Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so so there I am sitting in front of Brian, and I'm trying to be cool, you know, so I get to shake his hand. And here, this is going to sound like I'm really bragging, so I just need to set it up. I need to... I am a pretty... I'm a good guitar player. Okay. I'm not fabulous. Yeah, I've heard the records. I, yeah, I would agree. You're okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. But I'm not Eric Clapton, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm a good guitar player. I'm not fabulous, but... And I'm a, I'm a good singer for the level that I sing at. You know, it's kind of a light kind of voice. And I'm that, yeah, I am good, but am I great? Uh, I don't know. But um, anyway, so I think of myself as I'm good, moderately good. Yeah. Uh, Nat introduces me as we shake hands. Nat introduces me. Brian Epstein, I would like you to meet Don Daneman, one of the finest musicians I know. Wow. So I go to myself. I'm trying to be really cool. Anyway, so I say to him, wow, Brian, thank you. It's, it's great to meet you. We're big Beatles fans. And, you know, it was great to meet Nat. And we hope maybe we can get something going. And and Brian, now I'm going to imitate Brian uh, in a way that probably doesn't do him justice. But he says he, he was very gentlemanly. Uh-huh. And, you know, so, oh, Don. It's lovely to meet you. Yes, Matt has spoken very highly of you. And uh, yes, perhaps we can get something going, so you stay in touch. Anyway, a couple of little exchanges back and forth. It was pretty short. And then, just as Matt beckoned me in, he now, with the same gesture, he beckons me out. Opens the door, beckons me out. And so now I am now standing on the street, and I picture the scene as... Picture a video camera behind me. Mm-hmm. So you see me kind of silhouetted against lights, you know, but I'm looking the other way. So you're seeing my back. There's the limo, and there's some like street lights. It's a side street, no other cars except cars parked, but yeah. you know, no, no traffic. The limo slowly pulls off into black, mm-hmm. you know, fade to black. <laughs> and that's my video sense yeah. of this moment. Well, that's the ad man in you setting the scene, right? Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, funny thing is, I everything I did was audio, not video. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I still have that video yeah, yeah. In, in my head. <laughs> anyway, so the next thing is I call Tom and Marty at Lafayette, and I tell them that, uh, you know, what happened. So this, of course, set got us really excited. And what we did is we set up kind of a makeshift recording studio with okay. equipment that we had. We each had a, Tom and I each had a tape recorder that we could use and our amps and our PA mics, you know, that we'd used. And we recorded several demos in my basement in Eastchester. Now, were you were you writing songs at this point? Yeah, there was definitely one, if not more, song that we had written. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, yeah, somewhere we were, we were writing songs. Anyway, so it's now armed with these demo recordings, I made an appointment and I got to see Nat in uh, his apartment. Uh, also, it's on the Upper East Side. He had a, an apartment in a high rise. And the funny, funny thing about that is, I mean, it's just one little piece of trivia that I find amusing. I don't know if anyone else does. The day that I had the appointment with, with Nat was the day of the entire east coast or much of the east coast had a blackout oh and if go back in your history and you'll see it you'll you'll see 
and everybody thought, oh my God, the Russians are attacking. Yeah, was, well, sure, was, at that point, yeah. It was, it was kind of scary. So obviously I didn't go down that night. Uh-huh. We, we, re, we rescheduled a couple of days later. Wow. So I went down, played them the demos, and here's another little thing that I get a kick out of when I played them the demos. Now the demos were pretty good on their own, but stereo headphones, at the time were comparatively new uh-huh. and what most people had not really heard stereo headphones so I brought my tape recorder down with a pair of stereo headphones and I was prepared to wire it into his stereo system yeah but as I'm doing I say hey Nat look why don't you just listen like this here listen to these these are stereo headphones and yeah. you get to hear it kind of better so I think there were two things that happened. One is he had never heard stereo headphones before, so that's very impressive oh, yeah. by itself when you first heard it, if you hadn't. And the other is the demos were pretty good, actually. Do you happen so to remember I, any of the songs that were on the demos? The only one that I actually remember was a song called Money to Burn. Which oh, yeah. We did, yeah, we did record. Yeah, and that's one of your originals, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah, that was an original, yeah. Tom and I. yeah. Yeah, I've always liked that song. That and uh, Big Little Woman. I always I always love those songs on the album. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't remember if that was one of the original of that demo. But uh, the, I, like I said, the, the, the one that I remember specifically that was one of several of those several songs was Money to Burn. Yeah. Anyway, I hit play. And Nat is now hearing for the first time the audio coming through these stereo headphones. And I see his face kind of light up and look up at the ceiling. Yeah. Like as if he's looking up like, ah. <laughs> like, so what he got was, hey, yeah, this is good. I think we can do something with yeah. this. So that got him to the point where he then began to book us in uh, clubs in New York. Okay. Got us to work. And that got us to the Columbia Record contract with new young producer John Simon right. who was interested and essentially that got the ball rolling so now we're starting to record at Columbia Studios and you just heard me talk about Red Rubber Ball yeah. how we got that and you know rehearsing that and recording that so I mean um, but what what a surreal turnaround that must be to go from basically just being sort of a part-time weekend band and like keeping your day job to be you know, in the orbit of Brian Epstein and the Beatles and in a Columbia recording studio. I mean, I just can't imagine what that must have felt like. Amazing. I, yeah. It was amazing. When I think back, it was kind of like you, you went through a surreal experience and was I really even there? Yeah. You know, it was just, you know. Anyway, okay, so we're recording. And one day in the studio, and this is the early part now, so, uh, so here we are now. We had signed with... Brian and Nat, management, and we assigned with Columbia Records, John Simon producing. We still needed a name. We were still the Rondells mm-hmm. from Lafayette College, and we, we nobody had come up with a really name that we all uh, agreed on. So Brian, who was in town at this one particular session, he comes up to me, and I'm going to do Brian again. Oh, Don, take a look at this. And he hands me what looks like his business card. Uh-huh. And I see it says Brian Epstein. I, oh, no, 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 Don, turn it over. <laughs> okay, I turn it over, and I see scribbled on the back is Sir Kerr, uh, I, I didn't quite get it. Uh, Brian, it's, what am I reading? What is this? Oh, Don, that's your new name. And if you see, it's the circle 
and it has the funny spelling. And it was John that came up with it. And as you oh. can see, you know, John with his funny mind, he came up with the let's call it the circle and print and spell it C Y R K L E. So that's how we got our new name. Wow. And it, 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 I get a thrill out of telling that, you know, at our concerts, I tell this story. And it was, you know, and, and my feeling level is like, oh my God. John Lennon gave us our name. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about this this first album. So I mean, so you've got your name. You're in the recording studio. When you look at the tracks, it seems like there's a decent number of originals on there. A couple of yours, a couple, you know, Tom Dawes. I mean, at that point, it was relatively uncommon, wasn't it, for bands to be able to write and record their own things? I mean, I know the Beatles had made a, a career of that, but wasn't that still pretty unusual at that point? I think at that point it was sort of. It, it was both ways. It went both ways. Okay. Because if you think back, yeah, a lot of bands maybe didn't. But, I mean, think about Bob Dylan. He sure. wrote everything mm-hmm. that he, he recorded when you do that. And, of course, the Beatles, as you mentioned yourself. So that was a, a back and forth. Yeah. Well, I just kind of thought, you know, with a new band coming together the way you did, I'm surprised you had the freedom to do that. I guess I would have assumed that they would have been like, you know, these are the songs you're going to record. These are the ones we think are going to be hits. But it sounded like you had a, a relative amount of freedom. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, I guess we could have done anything we wanted, but it was, it was kind of a collaborative effort yeah. in terms of what we finally decided to record and how we did it and all of that. It wasn't like there was an actual boss that said, you are going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, n- n- none of us did that. It was more like, well, let's try this, let's try that. It was it was collaborative. That's great. Yeah, it, was, it, yeah it, it, it worked out really well. So we recorded Red Rubber Ball, and then I went into the Coast Guard Reserve. Oh, okay. Now, this is also, this is one of those, you know, how we just talked about how, isn't it amazing how things came together? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to start out by saying thank you, Coast Guard, because as much <laughs> as I, you know, I would have rather been out, they were really nice to me. I'm now in boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. Tommy went on the road as a bass player with Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, wow. And Marty was still in school. And Earl was off in medical school. So uh-huh. he was he was sort of half in, half out right. of the band. Nat gets in touch with me at boot camp and says, hey, we have a chance to go on Hullabaloo, the show Hullabaloo. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was one of the big shows of, of TV shows at the time, if you can get, like, a pass. Yeah. Anyway, God bless the Coast Guard. They gave me a pass. Wow. And I got a three-day pass. I took a bus up to... New York. The show was recorded in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. We so we did Hullabaloo. We introduced Red Rubber Ball on Hullabaloo, and that was also. So here I am thrown into you know the host was Paul Anka. Oh great! I love Paul Anka. Yeah. Um, Leslie Gore was one of the musical people on this on that particular show, and Peter and Gordon. So and there we are. You know just. We were the new guys, wow. you know, and they were all very nice. You know, we met them, and you know, we shook hands. And they all wished us luck. So we did Red Rubber Ball, and I went. Now, uh, my dad actually drove me back. It was like way, way late, and I think I got there just in time to wake up with everybody uh-huh. when I was supposed to be back. Okay. So the, the next thing that was one another surreal, incredible experience was now the show was supposed to air the next week. Uh-huh. Well, the whole camp knew that I was going to be on the show. Oh, wow. You know, hey, 
this this guy got a pass and he's in a rock band and he's going to be on this national TV show. So the whole dining room at night, everybody, the whole camp was like in the dining room. Yeah. Watching this show, and I remember praying to myself, "Oh, please, <laughs> let us not let let us not have been cut." Yeah. You know, I mean, I will lose all credibility. Oh, yeah, that'd be horrible. And I still, I still remember watching this, watching it in black and white yeah. on the little TV that was there, and the whole room erupted. Yay! Whoa, 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 That's great. Did it have any meaning for you to be shooting Hullabaloo in Brooklyn, where you grew up? I mean, you're in the same place where you're humming Little Brown Jug to your mom, and here you are, you know, 20, 20 so years later, back, you know, on, on one of the biggest TV shows in the world at the time. Did that have a special meaning for you, being back in Brooklyn to do that? Uh, no. Actually, you know, <laughs> okay. No, it could have been anywhere. It would okay. Have been, you know, it, it was mind-blowing to be there. But um, it sounds like your turnaround time, too. I mean, you had such a limited time off, and, you know, driving back to get there just in time, it probably, you probably didn't really have much time to soak it up. No, I didn't think much about Brooklyn. I just thought about doing the show. Yeah, and sure. The whole thing. And, and also being in a bit of a fog, you know, like, oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So now the next thing that happens is also Nat gets in touch with me. We have an opportunity to be on... Of you know the 1966 Beatles tour, that, I mean that's that's just insane because at this point, what you're two years away from doing that Beatles cover show, and here you are like on the same bill with the Beatles. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's amazing. I yeah, mean, <laughs> it, it was the most amazing. You know, it's like everything just fell into place. It was the most amazing thing. That I still can't believe it just happened the way it did. Yeah. So. Here, here was the what was really mind blowing is that I wasn't going to get out of my reserve duty until too late. Oh, okay. And they were actually they were actually looking to replace me. Uh huh. Oh wow, that's so scary. So here, here is the most mind blowing thing that happened. So I had it was a six month active duty reserve. Yeah. You know, and then you know, then there's meetings and stuff down the road. But essentially, you're free. You're back in society. So out of the blue. It's almost like God said, you know, we got to figure out a way yeah. to get done on the Beatles tour. You know? Yeah, yeah. And God told the United States government <laughs> to do something to get done on the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it pays and to have friends States, in high places, I guess. Yeah, right. And the United States government looked up at God and said, we got this. We got this. <laughs> and what they did is they changed... This is so mind-blowing to me. They changed the reserve active duty requirement from six to five months. Oh, my gosh. And I got out a month earlier than scheduled in time to do the Beatles tour. I, I mean, that's that's insane. You're right. I mean, that does feel like some like, it's like fate. It's kismet. That's insane. Mm-hmm. It was the most in- incredible thing that we're actually going to meet the Beatles now. Oh, yeah. So the first plane ride I, I tell this in our concerts like because I, I get a kick out of this we hadn't met him and it's the first plane ride and I believe it was from New York to Chicago which was the first concert and the whole tour is on the plane it's a big commercial yeah. airliner and the Beatles are behind a wall in the back <laughs> so I am sitting now three across uh-huh. you know, it was like uh, one of those standard commercial planes, sure. three on one side, three seats on the other side. I'm sitting next to Tommy, bandmate Tommy, and manager, co-manager Nat Weiss. Okay. And we're looking back, we're looking back, we're looking back, <laughs> and nothing, nothing, nothing. Are we going to meet them? Are they going to come out? Uh, 
Anyway, finally, well into the flight, the door opens and there's Paul. Oh my gosh! So you know we're so now we're trying to be our, our whole the way we conducted ourselves was in these kind of situations we always tried to be really cool. Oh, definitely, not, you have to, yeah. You know, not not like goggling fans. Yeah, not but geeking anyway, out. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul works his way up to us. He's he. You can see he's very jovial. You know, yeah. He's shaking hands with people. He's smiling. Yeah. You can see he knows some people. He's meeting them again. Some he's meeting for the first time. And he uh, finally gets to us, and Nat knows him. Right. You know, through Brian. You know, sure. Nat, Nat, Nat knows him. So he and Nat introduces us, and it was like, wow. I see Don, Don Danman of the Circle meet Paul McCartney. So I get, I shake hands with Paul, and it was a couple of short exchanges. Wow, we're big Beatles fans. Nice to meet you. Yeah. You know, maybe we get to hang out. Similar, Tommy Dawes meet. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Same thing, like short little ditties. And then sure. he, he uh, says, well, great to meet you guys. We'll see you around. And off he goes. Down the plane, disappears behind the wall. And we spend the rest of the flight discussing every one of those little <laughs> stupid words that we said. Like, yeah. Why Why couldn't we have been cooler right. to keep them, you know, yep. keep them there? Yeah. <laughs> My impression of the first actual concert, well, first of all, we, we thought... Are we going to be able to even play? They're all they're going to care about is wanting the yeah, Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we played, and they loved us. They cheered, whooped, and hollered. I mm-hmm. mean, we had two hit records at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, Red Rubber Ball was just kind of peaked, had peaked, and Turn Down Day was released and yeah. slowly on the way I mean, up. another great song. That's Both of those songs, I feel like they've never stopped getting radio play. You know, they just have lasted mm-hmm. the test of time. Yeah, yeah, they were great. So we have finished playing. I'm, and this was like a one of those hockey arenas, so it's kind of long, narrow, mm-hmm. and we and the stage was of course open, and we're on the stands just behind and above the stage, just looking right down. I'm like leaning on a railing, just looking right down at the stage. Yeah. And, and now the Beatles come out, and like I say, all oh, we we ju- had just met that quickie Paul, but we right. hadn't met the band yet, and. My impression was, first off, they look very elegant. Their jackets seem to be, what they, you know, of course it's dark, so you can't really tell, but they yeah. look like sort of greenish, dark green, velvety sort of jackets, and very elegant. And sure. they come out and they play. Of course, it, and it's an indoor arena, so the, the sound is contained. You know, the crowd is, goes wild. Yeah. And just two specific things that I remember about the crowd. The first one is, Standing next to me was a lady I did not know, but I'm thinking she must have been part of the press, and okay. we just happened to be standing next to each other. Yeah. Tears were just streaming down her face. It was just so emotional. The, the moment was so oh, emotional sure. that yeah. she, she was just kind of uncontrollably crying, basically. That was one thing. And the other thing is, picture the Wizard of Oz <laughs> behind a curtain in the back with an electronic... Uh, control panel that he he would push a button and a seat would have an electronic shock and a girl would jump up <laughs> and just picture he's pushing buttons pop and what i saw was girls jumping out of their seat wow. individual girls you know and now of course i could only see near the front but that's what i saw bop, 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 bop. <laughs> just an incredible ex- experience 
So anyway, and the tour was, you know, we did get to hang out with them. I'd get a kick out of John would uh, regularly come up, uh, you know, w when we met him and he would look and go, Here, here's my John Lennon uh, invitation, <laughs> which of course is nothing like what he really sounds like. But so guys, have you learned how to spell yet? That's, that's, uh, you know, with the C-Y-R-E, right, right, right. that's John. You know, I, I, uh, George, uh, I had a wonderful uh warm conversation with him just about he he was still blown away by being a Beatle and oh, sure, he yeah. us luck and I, yeah. we talked about you know history sort of stuff got to play cards with Paul and Ringo one night and that was just kind of regular they became regular guys you know yeah, yeah. we played for we played for quarters they didn't uh, you know they didn't tout you know, they didn't right. flaunt their being rich you yeah know, yeah sort of stuff so it, it was really very nice and and uh, the last concert at candlestick park george was taking pictures uh-huh and he kind of alluded uh, you know, maybe we're, I don't know if we're going to even play in person anymore. I just want to have personal memory. Yeah. So, you know, that was sort of it. You know, we, it was just an incredible experience. Big city, the big city, the big stadium, the big stadium. And we played and we did well. That was that. It's just, I mean, it's so amazing to think that all that happened in such, in a relatively short period of time, you know, going from, going from a college band to being at Candlestick with the Beatles. I mean, it's just, just an yeah. amazing Amazing couple of years for you. Yeah. Anyway, so I'll just let me just finish up by I'll give you just a little quick sense of the revival. Yeah, yeah. Could could you tell me a little bit about because you said you know if almost fifty years later you get this call sort of out of the blue. I mean that must have been a real blast from the past. It was really very cool. Now, I was retired yeah. from my commercial career and just you know kind of hanging out. And yeah. Got a call from Mike Loskamp. Hey, I'm in a band and. You know, he introduced me to Pat, uh, Pat McLaughlin, who, like, I called him the go-getter of the whole thing. Okay. He, it's really, it's his baby that got put together. Uh -huh. I will give him total credit for that. So they, they invited me to come to Columbus, where the band is. And like I say, this is a band, local band called the Gas Pump Jockeys. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is the band was really like a wonderful family. It's, there were five of them. The wives were all involved. They were a wonderful family of people. They welcomed me really nicely. First, I had coffee with Pat and his wife, Sandy, who mm -hmm. have become really good friends of my wife and I, my wife, Deb, and I. Mm -hmm. We just really hit it off. Then we went over to guitar player Don White's house, and that's where they, they have a rehearsal studio in his basement. And we had, we had dinner there. Uh, it was probably pizza, you know, typical thing. And met Mike for the first time in 50 years, which was a big event for them all. What's going to be when Don meets Mike? Well, I yeah. gave him a hug, you know. What do you do? It was cool to see him again. And when we played, it was apparent that we could work together very well. So that all worked out. Yeah. Well, you have and to have that um, chemistry, you know? I mean, I think that's the thing what made it work so well in the 60s, the chemistry you yeah. guys had. So, you know, for this new formation to come together, for that chemistry to be there again is, is a pretty pretty great thing. Yeah. And the first actual paid gig was in Lakewood, New Jersey. There was some problem with the Love and Spoonful. Oh. <laughs> and a concert they couldn't play. And the promoter had to scrounge around and redo the order of stuff. So we became, he took a chance on us, you know, we became the opening act mm -hmm. for Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. I oh, think great they band. Were the closers. Yeah. Uh, I know it was the Vogue's mm -hmm. 
and Dennis Stefano, who is the lead singer of the Buckingham. Okay. That's a pretty good bill. Oh, it was a good bill, yeah. yeah. And we opened the show. And we got a standing ovation. Wow. So that, anyway, so that basically started us off. And, and like I say, just to, to finish up, it was very rewarding to, number one, I mean, there's all sorts of positive things about this, but the idea that I am now 77 years old, so at that time I was 75, you know, so the idea at my age to be able to get up on stage and rock and roll is just an amazing. I'm so thankful that, you know, my life has led me to still be able to do this. When I hear my voice coming back through the monitor system, it still sounds like a rubber ball when I do it. Yeah. So that, you know, God has given me, has let me pretty much keep my voice. And at the meet and greets, we get all these wonderful comments of, you know, red rubber ball meant this to me and yeah. that to me and that to me. We meet people, you know. And so for those couple of hours of, of the concerts, old farts like us become <laughs> 17 again. Yeah. <laughs> It's really an amazing experience, and I'm very thankful about that. So uh, well, that's great. That, uh, <laughs> let me sign off. That's great. Well, this, Don, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for thanks again for taking the time. Okay, terrific. Now I, I know you guys are. I know you guys had been doing concerts uh, pretty regularly before everything was paused due to the pandemic. But I know you have a live album out there. Where can people find that? Where can they find you online? Basically, there's the Circle Facebook page. Okay. And thecircle.com. Okay. We just re-recorded Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day. Yeah, I've heard those. And they sound great. So new recordings of them, if people are interested in that. And we also recorded Feeling Groovy, which was the song that we actually had a chance to do and didn't at the time. <laughs> so that, and another one called The Visit, which was the B-side of one of our releases and has gotten uh, a, a bit of notice. Oh, great. So, yeah, so anyway, so they're available if you're interested, you know, on iTunes or any of the normal Great. places. It's, it's there. We will record more. So with that, uh, I have uh, got to go back to my non-rock and roll life. Sure. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So nice to speak to you, Nick. And yeah. Thank you for asking uh, to do this. Absolutely. Thanks again to my guest, Don Daneman. This was just a fascinating conversation. I mean, looking back at the steps it took to get the circle where they were, having them positioned to be in the right place at the right time, so many things had to come together just right uh, to, to make all that happen. And it was really interesting to hear Don recount those step by step because it's just, uh, it's it's almost an unbelievable story, but there you have it. That's true. You heard it from the man himself. Anyway, you can find out more about the band on their Facebook page, as Don mentioned, or at thecircle.com. And be sure to check out their recent live album, as well as their new recordings of classic songs Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might like the interview I did with Michael Nesmith of The Monkees a while back. You can find that and a whole catalog of past episodes at soundcloud.com slash allthebooks or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening this week, and I hope you have a happy new year. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.